If you're using your pew Bibles, you can find it on page um, 825. So if you would, please turn to Galatians 3, and we'll be reading verses 26 to 29. Galatians 3, 26 to 29. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus, into Christ, have clothed yourself with, with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is the word of God. If you follow pop culture, you would have heard, you would have realized the scandal about the Oscars this year. Well, for the second year in a row, all the nominations, all 20 nominations for the acting awards are white. The character, the actors are, actresses are white. So there's been a, you know, a lot of soul searching about why all the people up for awards are Caucasian. If you follow pop culture you, and, and sports, you'd likely realize that this is the fourth Super Bowl in a row where one of the quarterbacks is black. Now, that's a real surprise, four Super Bowls in a row, because 1987 was the first time there was a black quarterback and before, in, in the Super Bowl. And before that, there was a big controversy over whether African Americans could play quarterback. But after 1987, with the first quarterback, it took two decades before the second quarterback in a Super Bowl was African American. The NFL now has a rule that when a when a football team needs a new head coach, they are required to interview a black candidate. Even if they have their eyes on a particular candidate, they have to include a black candidate in the uh, interviews. And if you've read recently, just not recently, the, new t- the NFL passed a law saying that if there's an executive opening, they have to consider a woman as one of the candidates for that office. Everybody realizes that this is the first administration where we've had a black president. Although that's a little odd when you think about it, because one of his parents was Caucasian, and the other of his parents was African, and we call him, we could theoretically call him white, or black, but in the oddity of American culture, he becomes our first black president. There's some more sinister side to some of this. If you are a young African immigrant, five foot six inches and 150 pounds, working 12 hours a day in New York City as a street peddler, coming home late at night, sitting outside your apartment building, 
on the phone for whatever reason, and a car pulls up, you'd be smart not to run for the safety of the vestibule of your apartment building. Because that car might have an unmarked policeman who thinks you're running from him, ununiformed policeman. And if you reach into your coat pocket to pull out your wallet to show him your ID, he might think you're pulling out a gun and then shoot you 41 times, hitting you 19 times. If you happen to be black, you want to be sure you have membership in AAA. Because if your car crashes later night, late at night, whether you're a man or a woman, you can't go bang on a front door for help because you might get shot. You also can't stay with your car or your van because if some late at night, if somebody pulls up and you get out, to defend yourself and your property and are carrying a gun and an unmarked policeman pulls up in an unmarked car, an ununiformed policeman pulls up in an unmarked car, he might shoot you and kill you. Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Eric Harris, Walter Scott, Jonathan Farrell, Sandra Bland, Samuel DuBose, uh, Freddie Gray, one or two our country might have survived, but so many. And a white Christian leader comes out and says, I don't care what your skin color is, if the police say, stop, put your hands up, you stop and put your hands up. And that's the most intelligible response he can offer to the minority community in the name of Christ. Or, if you confront politicians by chanting, Black Lives Matter, one of the old white guy, politicians might respond, All lives matter. Which is true, but it may not really be the point. Because as Malcolm Moore points out, when a house in a subdivision is on fire and the firemen rush to the scene, you don't insist that all houses matter. You think the only house that really matters right then is the one that's on fire. Racial minorities not the minority we, we, most of us belong to, but racial minorities in this country, African-American or Hispanic, on average, suffer poor schools, high rates of unemployment, high rates of arrest, conviction, incarceration, and long sentences. Why should this matter to us? You know, I've mentioned before, right? Civil Rights Act, 1964. Immigration and Nationality Act, 1965. The only reason we can be here as a church community, the only reason that your parents, most of you, could come, was not because they were hardworking and well-educated, 
It's because the Civil Rights Act changed the laws within domestic America. And that enabled the president, finally, to change the laws that affected immigration. Before the Civil Rights Act, Asians were discriminated against when they tried to come to this country. The laws favored Northern Europeans. Why should it matter to us, as most of us as Asians? It's because the Civil Rights Movement is what enabled us to be here, individually, family, community. But it's not, you know, Civil Rights Act, right? It, it, wasn't, it didn't end in summer. Just a minor, minor, minor illustration of this. My, you know, we're all, my, my family, Irene and I are moving to Florida to be with my mother in six months or so. Because that's where our kids love to go fishing because they catch big fish down in Florida. Well, my son, Ben, from Chicago, likes it so much that he goes regularly and he, every vacation he spends down there, once in a while we convince him to come to Boston, but mostly he goes to Florida, and he brings friends from his community. Now this, oh, a couple months ago, he brought, one of his friends is, uh, one of his friends, here's the gospel, one of his friends is white from Mississippi or Alabama, I don't know what. He goes to a Chinese church, so one of, you know, a lot of his friends are Chinese, and he, and then one of the, his roommates is a refugee from Congo who grew up in a refugee camp in Tanzania, and now lives with them in Chicago as he migrated to the U.S. So the four of them, a white guy, a half-white guy, a tan guy, and a black guy went down to Florida. And there's four of them, but the canoe only holds two, so they got to fish in pairs. So the white guy and a half-white guy decided they were going to go out fishing. That which left the tan guy and a black guy to figure out what they were going to do. They decided to go to the swimming pool. Now, my mother had already told the, uh, the condo association that my son was coming and he had some friends she didn't think to point out that not all of his friends were white. And they didn't think of twice about two guys going fishing, and they happened to be white or half-white, and the other two guys going to the pool. But they go to the swimming pool, and some maintenance worker there throws them out of the pool. He says, you can't be here. And then won't let them leave the pool area for some I don't know what he intended to do with them. But he said they couldn't leave the area, but they had to get out of the pool. So they call up my son, who flies over there, gets in, uh, almost ends, ends up getting in a fist fight with this fellow. And he calls up apologetic because Ben's going for ordination, and now he's having a, he's cussing out some, some redneck cracker. And, and, you know, and he's going for ordination. And he says, you know, I, you know, I hope you don't think less of me. I said, son, you should have thrown him in the pool. <laughs> if the pool's only for white people, then all white people go in the pool. I don't know, what is this? 1950s Alabama? Now, in case you're from... Alabama. What is this? 1970s Boston? You know, we still, we had busing riots. We're still not over this. What is it, why does it matter to Christians is really more important. Because isn't our role to lead people to Jesus and transform people one at a time and transform people, lead to transform society? Isn't that really all we're about? This sermon series, we've looked last year at 
uh, the Old Testament, salvation history, the beginning of history, the beginning of time up until uh, the time of Jesus. And at the beginning of the Old Testament, they made, God made promises about restoring the world to the place it should be. And then Jesus comes to restore the world to where the place it should be. But it's a surprise because he doesn't fully restore everything. And he says, well, I will fully restore everything at the end of time, but, but right now we're in between these two ages. You know, he started to restore, he hasn't fully restored. And so this semester we're looking at uh, life between these ages. Life between the beginning of the reign of God and the culmination of the reign of God. And we've looked at different aspects of life between these two ages from the New Testament. And each time we'll be surveying some little piece of, some piece of the New Testament and what it tells us about life in this age. And so what we've seen so far, surely we've seen it so far, uh, life in the meantime. And so we saw Acts. What the book of Acts is all about is this, is that in this, between the first coming of Christ and second coming of Christ, what God really wants is for us to prioritize missions to the unreached. God doesn't want a heaven full of Jews alone. Yeah, Jews are welcome. But everybody else is welcome. And some of them haven't heard their welcome. So the priority, according to the book of Acts, book of Acts traces, how does this Jewish church become a Gentile, but I'm on a Gentile church, and then what's, the, what's God's goal? God's goal is for everybody, every tongue and tribe and people and nation, to be welcomed in the kingdom of God. So our role in between these two ages is to spread the gospel to the unevangelized. And then we saw from the book of Thessalonians, you know, in Thessalonica, when Paul preached the gospel there, there was conflict, and then Paul ran away. And, and really, Thessalonians reminds us that we will always be somewhat at odds with our culture. We'll be out of step with our culture, and that will offend people. Now, there's some ways we're at odds with our culture, and we shouldn't be. Sometimes, when we're out of step with our culture, we need to change. But other things, we can't change. And they'll always be offensive to our culture. So, First Thessalonians is really about how can we survive while we're there, our people out. How can we survive? Uh, how do we respond? How do we keep our faith in God and our faith in each other and in our leaders when we're the odd people out in a community? Then, another issue that often comes up, we saw in Second Thessalonians. Christ came once, he's coming again, and, you know, particularly when life is hard or when life is dangerous, we think, yeah, Jesus, come back quickly, quickly, quickly. And we get preoccupied with, when is he going to come back? And we spend all this time on speculation, bizarre books about when Jesus is coming back and how you can know. And Second Thessalonians, just like Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, Second Thessalonians says, look, you'll never know. Don't worry about it. Always be ready. And this is how you can be ready. Live for me. Care for each other. Serve the world. Now in Galatians, we have a different theme altogether. We have a fourth theme, and Galatians deals with this. Galatians has a lot of theological argument, but fundamentally the purpose of Galatians and the purpose of all that theology is to address this question. How do we live together? Uh, well, particularly... What are the social, or the sociological implications? What are the sociological implications of the gospel? 
You see, we're so used to the gospel as theology. And our hymnody, our songs, our worship songs are full of gospel as theology. And when we celebrate communion, we, we commemorate Christ's death for us, and it's theology. And it's crucial. We can't live without it. Our life depends on it. But even when they celebrated communion in 1 Corinthians 11, it wasn't just theological. It was also sociological. And we won't spend, but I'll just reference this briefly and then we'll move on to Galatians. Remember in 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul warns them not to take communion unworthily? And we think that means don't take communion if you're not thinking about Jesus. Not, don't take communion if you've committed some sin. That wasn't what they were talking about at all. Paul's problem was not a theological problem, or the Corinthian problem was not a, the problem Paul was correcting was not a theological problem. It was a sociological problem. It was a socio-economic problem. Rich people were coming to communion, and it was all potluck. Communion was not a little thing like the little wafer and a little cup of grape juice. We only do that now because in church history, people kept getting drunk. And we were worried about people going to hell because they were getting drunk at communion. So we reduced it all to, to a little tiny cup of, of unfermented grape juice and a little tiny piece of sliver of bread. Originally, communion was a, a meal with wine. And the rich people, they could they had a lot of food. They could bring it. And they could come early. The slaves, they couldn't come to worship until after they got off of work till the owners let them come. And so the rich would come, they'd pig out. By the time the, meal, by the, time the, the poor came, they were stuffed and they were drunk. And, and the poor were come late and there's no food to eat. Paul said, you take communion like that and you're liable to go to hell. It was a sociological problem. Not a theological. But we're so used to arguing about theology that that's all we see in the text. So I want to show you this morning from, we're going to take just one piece, not the whole argument of Galatians, but one piece of Galatians to show you that the theological and historical biographical argument that precedes Galatians 3 culminates in Galatians 3. But it culminates not in a theological statement about Jesus dying for our sins. It culminates in a sociological statement about what Jesus' death for our sins means for our lives together as a community. Turn with me, if you have not there already, to Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 27. Galatians 3. Notice 26 to 27. Here we have theology. So, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. You see the theology? Faith, we believe, not works. It's through faith. That, through faith in the work of Christ for, on our behalf, through faith in Christ Jesus, we become children of God. If you're not a child of God this morning, this is how you become a child of God. Through faith, you throw yourself on the mercy of Christ who died for your sins to bring you forgiveness. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Theology. Verse 27. More theology. For all of you were baptized into Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. 
when we have faith in Christ, the church baptizes us as a confirmation of our commitment to Christ. We're welcome at the communion table where we sustain our relationship with Christ. So through faith and through the church, through the communion, through baptism, we're all children of God. You see, theology. Except we've missed an important word that he's already used twice. You see what he said in 326? He mixes theology with sociology. Verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. And in verse 27, he says, For all of you who were baptized in the Christ, why the all? Well, he explains in verse 28 and 29. For there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ. You see, he's making a theological point for a sociological purpose. What he's saying is, what Christ did for you and for you and for you and for you and for you. He didn't do just for you and for you and for you. Christ doesn't just save us individually. He saves us all on the same criteria. Not circumcision, not Torah, not food laws. He saves us all on the same criterion. Faith in the Christ who died for us. And as a consequence of that theology, there's a sociological change that comes over us. We are now all part of one community. And there is no more distinction. These, why did he choose Jew and Gentile, slave or free, male and female? Because these were the three most fundamental distinctions in Jewish culture. Jew and non-Jew. The ethnic, racial distinction between those who were the people of God, Jews, and everybody else who were disgusting, idolaters, and immoral, sexually immoral. Economically, the most fundamental distinction, socioeconomic status, slave and free. Those are the only, those are the most obvious polar opposites. Gender distinctions, male and female. Part of the 18 benedictions, a prayer that was regularly said in the synagogues, weekly said in the synagogues, was a prayer by Jewish males thanking God that they were born Jews, not Gentiles. That they were born free, not slaves. That they were born male, not female. And the Apostle Paul says, Christ, what Christ has done theologically destroys that prayer and those distinctions. There is now in Christ neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Now, 
How did this play out? Oh, well, let me be, just let me point this out. So far, Paul has talked about theology, right? So far, Paul has talked about ecclesiology, church life. He talked about our relationship with God because there's no slave nor free, because there's no male nor female, because there's no Jew or Gentile in God's eyes, then in us. In our eyes, we can't make these distinctions. We can't say one is superior to the other. So all he's talked about is theology, and all he's talked about is ecclesiology. Now let's be clear, because we're talking about something else this morning. We're not talking just about God. We are. We, we begin with God. We're not talking just about church. We are. That's the second thing. Now we're asking, how does this affect how we interact in society? Which is another step. And Paul doesn't talk about that step. So you could challenge me. Does that mean anything for us and how we relate to the world? My only response to you is this. Think about what the church was at that time. Very tiny minority. Meeting in houses, not in megachurches. In a violent community. A community that was suppressing Christians. They were fighting for their survival. They didn't spend a lot of time. They didn't have power in an autocracy, in a demagoguery. They didn't have power to influence society. They didn't have the, the, the influence and the power that we have. So what God called them to may not go as far as what God calls us to. So let's think about what the implications of this are, first of all, in the church, and then within society. You see, think about race and ethnicity. Paul gave us theology in Galatians 3, 26 to 29. But he explains something. He explains something that happened in Galatians 2. Galatians 2, you remember what he talks about? Paul said he was living in Antioch, living worshiping in the church of Antioch, and Peter came in. And Peter joined them, and everything was fine. And then some, some people from Jerusalem came. And they said, look, you, you Jews can't be eaten with these Gentiles. You know, because Jews, we follow kosher laws and the Gentiles don't. And, and if you eat with them, they're going to corrupt you. So he said, the Jews, the, the, the Jews who were in Antioch got a little anxious and they separated from Paul. And so they separated from the Gentiles. And then not only did the, the Jews get anxious, but Peter got anxious and suddenly now he's eating a separate with the Jews away from the Gentiles. And not only Peter, but Barnabas. Paul's colleague got, got anxious, and now he's only eating with the Jews and not with the Gentiles. And so you get a church split in two over racial ethnic lines. And so the Apostle Paul says he stood up in public in front of everybody and accosted Peter for his hypocrisy. You see, theology has sociological implications for us as a community. Theology has Sociological implications, socioeconomic implications for us. Think of the book of Philemon. A lot of people criticize the, Old, the New Testament, or the Old Testament, New Testament, because it supports slavery. No, you can't read the New Testament accurately and suppose that it supports slavery. The book of Philemon. If you have, you know, if your parents migrated, you should understand what indirect communication is. Ah, in the book of Philemon, 
Paul is yelling as loud as he can in the culture of indirect communication to make his point. He says to Philemon, I can't order you to release Onesimus as your slave because you would lose money if you did. But come to think of it, actually, you owe me your salvation. You owe me your eternity. So I could ask you to do that. And you read the whole book, and it is full of this sort of indirect communication. No, Paul did not order Philemon to release Onesimus. But he made it impossible for Philemon to exercise ownership over Onesimus. What Paul started the church on a trajectory that required the end of slavery within the church. And then gender and sexism. Well, we have a couple of verses, a couple of passages we do have to deal with. What's remarkable about it in the New Testament is the high level of involvement in ministry, the high responsibility in ministry that women played in Jesus' ministry, throughout the Gospels, in the book of Acts, and in Paul's ministry. What is striking is not a couple of passages that raise some question about full equality in service, but the amount of responsibility that was accorded to women in the New Testament. Theology has sociological implications. Now, the question is, how does that affect how we do church today? Or how the, do we interact with society today? Having a Chinese church is really reasonable in a time when there's racism, and having a Chinese church will always be reasonable for people who speak Mandarin. Maybe it's not so essential that second gen and third gen who speak English fluently and live here and are more American than they are Asian. Maybe it's not so essential that, that we consider ourselves a Chinese church. Maybe we can be part of a Chinese church colleagues with Chinese in a Chinese church and a Chinese congregation without ourselves defining ourselves as Chinese. Maybe when we plan activities, we don't plan activities that people have to have 20 or 30 or $100 to join because then we exclude people without 20 or $30 or $100 if they want to join. Maybe we pay careful attention to any kind of gender distinctions that we feel scripture requires us to make so that the only ones we make are those that are absolutely clearly required in scripture rather than ones we might add to scripture. Maybe our hymnody needs to change. Maybe in addition to songs about Jesus dying for our sins, we can sing songs about Jesus changing our world changing our church and changing our world. Of course, before we can sing those songs, somebody has to write them. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for those who've gone before and their precious gift to us of sound theology. But maybe, Father, maybe that theology can't be entirely sound until it's reflected in our society, within the church, and in our society as a whole. Guide us as we begin this conversation. 
We don't know how to solve these issues, maybe not even know how to begin to address them, but help us, Father, that your church might be known for people who care about the things you care about, and not just theology, but also sociology. We ask you to be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in lieu of a response song this morning, because I told you we don't have hymns,